0: where you see, for example, in South Australia, massive amounts of solar and wind. The economics of it are pushing out the coal generation, so you're losing that security in the system. And also, many of the coal plants across Australia are reaching the end of their useful life. And you're really starting to get some reliability issues, uh, some security issues.
1: This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Today's podcast features a discussion with a leader in the regulatory space, both here in Canada and internationally, Paula Conboy, recently returned to Canada. Paula is a senior counselor in the energy and environment practice with the Sussex Strategy Group and a part-time board member with the Energy Market Authority in Singapore. She has returned to Canada following one of her many stints in Australia. She spent five years as the chair of the Australian Energy Regulator, was previously a board member of the Ontario Energy Board, and a past Vice President of Regulatory and Government Affairs at PowerStream, which is now part of Electra Utilities. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. In my conversation with Paula, we discuss the similarities and differences between Canada and Australia's electricity sectors and how they are regulated, the challenges of integrating intermittent renewables in their system, and regulatory innovation. And like many previous podcasts, we close the conversation with three book recommendations from Paula. Here is my conversation with Paula, recorded in late September 2020. Well, Paula, welcome to the podcast. Glad you were able to join us.
0: Thank you for having me, Francis. Uh,
1: so, you've been back in Canada for less than a year? Or, no, it's been a year, I guess.
0: No, 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 no. Uh, we arrived back at the beginning of April.
1: Oh, okay. Um, Just in time so- for the pandemic.
0: That's right. So as law, you know, in one way it, it feels like just yesterday.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and then another sense it uh, it feels forever. So yes, we just arrived in the height of the pandemic, yeah. had to isolate ourselves in a hotel room for uh, for a couple of weeks. Right. But then, you know, what a wonderful summer we've had. So I've been able to spend uh, more time at the cottage than I have in uh, over 30 years, I think. So it's been a blessing and a curse.
1: And so back from uh, Australia, and I thought, I thought maybe we'd start there because on a couple of previous podcasts, people have, um, you know, held up Australia as a, an example that we might want to look to. There's a lot of similarities between the two countries, uh, you know, uh, both federal states resource-based economies and, and so on, increasing penetration of intermittent renewables in their system as well. If you, just at, at a very high level um, in, in your time as, a, as the, the regulator in Australia, what were sort of the compare and contrasts uh, that you've seen between, between their system and our system from an electricity standpoint?
0: Yes, Francis, you, you've hit on them, uh, certainly. I mean, they're both, as you say, um, large and resource-rich. Um, from a population and a GDP perspective, you know, quite uh, quite similar. Right. Um, and uh, both countries are, from an electricity and energy perspective, both countries are self-sufficient in terms of meeting their, um, their electricity needs. Right. Um, Australia and Canada both have... Um, fast growing sources of electricity generation in wind and and solar. Um, As you mentioned, they're they're both a a federated uh, construct. Mm -hmm. And um, I think similar to to Canada, Uh, in Australia, it's the states that have, the state governments that have control over energy policy and the federal government that have control over climate change policy, although I know some of that's being challenged here Mm -hmm. um, at the moment. So that is starting in the energy industry, starting to create interesting challenges as you try to integrate energy policy and climate change um, policy. Uh Uh, Electricity has become a political issue in both countries from an affordability perspective, from a climate change perspective. And starting to, from a reliability perspective and a security um, perspective. So those, if you step back and and think about where the the similarities um, are, um, what's different Mm -hmm. is that the proportion of electricity generated from renewable sources in Australia is below 22%. Right. um, With the rest coming from non-renewable sources, largely from coal so mm-hmm. coal not only for generation of electricity but also from an export perspective so the the export revenue that the country gets from coal is significant and that okay. has led to the political uh dynamics in uh, in the country um here of course we've got 67 percent of uh canadian energy is is met electricity is met from renewable uh from renewable sources Mm -hmm. about a third of australia's overall emissions uh comes from the energy sector so that's been a real area of focus whereas i think in in canada it's mostly the transportation sector Mm -hmm. and that's where we really uh need to to focus um as i mentioned the proportion of wind and solar in parts of australia are they're creating uh, challenges um, at the moment. So I think last year, um, the about 16% of electricity consumed in the national electricity market came from wind and solar. Mm-hmm. Um, they expect that to go up to about 27% uh, percent within the next couple of years, and over 40% by uh, 2030. That's okay. gonna create, without yeah. careful consideration, that's going to create some reliability and security challenges. And states in Australia are already uh, seeing that. Interestingly, and I think where Australia is unique, is about 5% of electricity generated comes from rooftop solar. Oh, okay. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. A significant, yeah. that's a significant amount. Another yeah. area that, that's different, uh, Francis, is the ownership structure. So the ownership structure, in, particularly in the networks, will actually, all over the energy a sector, but the ownership ship sector in Australia is predominantly private right privately owned yep. uh, There is an exception in Queensland and Tasmania and in one rural uh, Distribution network in New South Wales, but it is uh, it is privately owned whereas we have the opposite here um, yep. In yep. Canada, of course, we've got exceptions in Alberta in Nova Scotia and 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 Fortis, mm-hmm. um, and also Australia has a very unique uh, governance um, structure, and, and happy to happy to get into that
1: if you're interested. Yeah, and so so you were with the uh, national regulator.
0: I was with the national um, regulator. Okay. and so, how did that
1: work if 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 policy was at a state level?
0: Well, here we go. This is part of the interesting okay, uh, governance yeah. governance structure. Yeah. So, as part of the micro reform agenda in the nineties, okay. uh, the Council of Australian uh, Governments, and it was the um, the competition policy, or what we call the Hilmer reform mm-hmm. policy package, that not only dealt with energy, so electricity and gas, but also with other key areas. In, um, uh, in the economy. So, as part of that national micro reform agenda, the Council of Australian Governments created a new governance structure uh, for the energy system. They, um, and over a few different permutations and combinations, we have now the Australian Energy Market Commission. Okay. They are the body that is responsible for the market rules. Uh, So, not only the wholesale market, but also um, the rules that govern uh, regulation of the market. Um, They also, up until uh, recently, although they still have certainly still have a big role in advising the Council of Australian Governments Energy Council on energy uh, policy. We've got the Australian Energy Regulator, of which I was the chair for uh, five years, the National Electricity uh, and Gas uh, Regulator, and then the Australian Energy Market um, Operator. And all of those are, and the interaction between the Council of Australian Governments, the three market bodies, we now have an additional market body called the Energy Security Board, we can get into that, but the, the... the relationship between those bodies and between the states and the feds is set out in a national agreement. So mm-hmm. the Australian energy market um, agreement. Now, this was a big step forward uh, for the state governments to uh, seed, if you will, their state-based energy uh, regulators. Mm-hmm. Uh, so prior to, um, to this move, each state had their own electricity, their own energy um, uh, regulator, right. and there was a move that was made to bring that to a national level. Now, you can imagine that was a bit scary for the state governments yeah. um, because most, if not all, at the time still owned their electricity companies. Oh, okay. And here uh, they were bringing it to um, a national uh, regulator. So when the AER was set up, the the rules that governed how the regulator was going to discharge its duties was very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, that is starting to evolve um, over time. And there was... There was a benefit and a challenge to having very prescriptive rules. It does provide predictability, right. uh, but it can also hamper um, in certain areas. Benefit, though, of having a national regulator is that you've got consistent rules across the right, state. Right, across the country. Yeah. And if you've got um, a sector that is predominantly privately owned, mm-hmm. that's very good for investors. That's very good for um, the ownership structure. So I know if you know you've got Singapore Power or China Light and Power um, or other some of the pension plans that are that are starting to get some ownership structure in the the networks. There's a consistent set of rules,
1: right, right, um,
0: across um, across the country.
1: Now I'm sitting in Ottawa today, f- and. and- you're in uh, Northern Ontario, but um, in Ottawa, one of the, one, you know, one of the perennial issues is the challenge of trying to get any agreement on almost anything through a, a federal, provincial, territorial, process what was the impetus back in the 90s that they were able to achieve a consensus to move forward on which what was a transfer to to the federal uh, of, of state authorities was was there a, like was it triggered by a crisis was it triggered by a, a particular event or
0: well it was mostly triggered by um, ensuring and increasing the competitiveness of the Australian economy okay so that was the the competition policy that is essentially saying look, you know, Australia needs to become more productive, uh, more competitive in the world stage. Um, we, you know, are relatively small from a population uh, perspective. Yeah. The fact that you have a different set of rules in one state and a different set of rules in another state doesn't make sense. One of the examples, um, Francis, that, that was given um, in the micro-reform agenda was for was with shipping goods from Victoria up to Queensland. Yep. So if you wanted to ship goods from Victoria up to Queensland, so southeast up to northeast, uh-huh. you had to put your, and I may, may get this wrong, but the gist of it is there. You had to put your goods on a train track, on your tra- on the train, right. and get them up from, you know, the bottom of Victoria to the top of Victoria to the New South Wales border. You then had to take your goods off the train and put them onto a B-double truck and take them from the southern border of New South Wales to the northern border of New South Wales. Then you had to take them off the truck and put them back onto a rail with a different gauge rail okay,
1: yeah, to yeah. get
0: them from southern Queensland to northern Queensland. Now that that's a, you know, an extreme example, yeah, yeah. but it was really, you know, come on, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't make sense, particularly if we've got, from an electricity perspective, um, one long, Transmission line, yep. if you will, that goes from South Australia, Port Augusta in South Australia, up to Port Douglas um,
1: right.
0: uh, in Queensland. So there was an agreement among the state and federal governments to look at ways to become more uh, competitive, and, and that was one of um, that was one of the ways. Now, of course, the the deal was sweetened somewhat. There were competition payments that were made to the states for the vertical fiscal right. imbalance. Yeah. Um, And also, from an energy perspective, it wasn't politically as sensitive as it is now. So, you know, I'd be lying if I said that everything was running smoothly. Uh, It certainly has been uh, tested, particularly in the area of um, climate change, where you see, for example, in South Australia, massive amounts of solar and wind. Right. It's pushing out. Um, the economics of it are pushing out uh, the coal uh, generation. So you're losing that security yep. in the system. Uh, and also many of the coal plants across Australia are reaching the end of their useful life. And you're really starting to get some reliability issues, mm-hmm. uh, some security issues um, in areas like um, like South Australia. And so that of course creates um, political heat -hmm. Uh, Politicians don't like it when the lights go out um, and does start to put a strain on that relationship. Um, You've got different states with different targets for either remission reductions or renewable penetrations. Right. And how do you come to a, a nationally consistent? Um, uh, approach. I was on the energy security board as the chair of the Australian energy regulator (laughs) and we developed a a mechanism called the National Energy Guarantee that we put to the Council of Australian Governments and it was was a very unique and and what I thought an excellent mechanism from a number of of perspectives, one of which the, the consultation that we undertook in developing this uh, I don't think had been done anywhere mm-hmm. in the world, but essentially, it was to integrate energy policy and climate change um, policy. And it meant that retailers had to have a contract mix that not only met certain emission reductions but also had certainly had certain capacity uh, commitments to it. So what ultimately you know um, made it. Uh, fall in a heap at the last uh, minute and led to uh, the demise of uh, our prime minister which was probably about the sixth prime minister we lost uh, because of energy policy right. um, was the targets and yeah. and part of the part of the the push with the states was well hang on if i if my state has a more ambitious uh, renewable energy target than another state. I don't want the other state to piggyback on my renewable targets. So, right. it, you know, there is some tension, but there is uh, a unique and a solid governance structure that people do go back to and do rely on. And I think if it sort of can get through this, uh, these these challenges right now of settling on a climate change <laughs> um objective or or target if you will i no. think will i think will be in good shape keep on saying we so they will be in good shape <laughs> so,
1: so it sounds as though the uh, sort of the remit of the, the regulator um, in australia where you were is different from the remit of um, the regulator in ontario where you were previously where in Ontario, the Ontario Energy Board is is looking after rates, it's looking after reliability. It sounds as though the, the, the remit was much broader in Australia. Resource adequacy, environmental policy, climate change, those sorts of things didn't really enter into... Your your work when you were at the Ontario Energy Board, but it sounds like they were part of part of the the, the remit in Australia.
0: Uh, not not quite, uh, Francis, Actually, the what's what's interesting in Australia is that everybody is working towards the the market bodies, the three market bodies, mm-hmm. um, are working towards a single objective, and that is the national electricity objective, and it focuses squarely on. Uh, efficiency. Okay. And from a governance perspective, if you're looking at broader societal objectives, if you're looking for, um, uh, you know, environmental policy, if you're looking for, um, you know, different sort of social policies, Mm -hmm. that type of policy remit rests with elected elected officials. Okay. Um, not with the regulator. So all of our decisions was based on, on what is efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can still have an efficient outcome that is not affordable. Right. Um, And it sounds a bit crass, but you know, that wasn't within our remit in terms of, you know, you can certainly look at, um, you know, smoothing out a trajectory Mm -hmm. of revenue requirement or something, but that sort of, Different classes of customers, uh, vulnerable customers, and, and providing um, a different rate for them did not land within uh, within our remit, um, and that, you know. I think that there's a lot of benefit in that because as the regulator, we don't have those conflicting objectives. Right. Um, so you come out with what's, you know, an efficient and affordable, or, or sorry, rather an efficient outcome. And it may very well be that you need to address um, different sections of consumers, different vulnerable consumers. And okay. and, and that's completely legitimate. Yeah. Uh, you may also want to say, well, we want to... Create jobs. We used to call them, you know, jobs in the bush, and, and that's okay. a very legitimate um, uh, objective. But yeah. it's not one that rested with yeah. the regulator. Gotcha. So things that you know, to create jobs in the bush, to look at different sort of, um, you know, vulnerable tariffs or what have you, that belonged somewhere else, um, and. Also in Australia, we have full retail contestability as well. So you've okay. got um, retailer-consolidated billing, and there were requirements that the Australian Energy Regulator put on retailers in terms of um, helping uh, vulnerable vulnerable customers, for example.
1: Yeah. But the, the electricity rates are regulated, regulated by the by that regulatory The, the, net,
0: body? the network rates.
1: The network, are, rates. The
0: network um, revenues are... Um, the network revenues are regulated by um, the AER. Okay. Um, there is certainly some um, uh, moving towards cost-reflective tariffs. Okay. Um, absolutely. But the end uh, rate, what what shows up on the bill, is not regulated. I mean, in Tasmania, it's different. Um, but the what shows up on the bill is not regulated by the Australian energy uh, regulator that so it's the network. Tariffs are an input to retailers service offerings. Now for many years, retailers have certainly looked at networks as a cost pass through, but as the the electricity sector is uh, transforming, undergoing change, uh retailers are finding their competitive edge is in different types of uh service offerings okay the australian energy regulator will set what's called a default market offer yeah uh and that's yep. essentially just a a benchmark offer right um if you will but really it's up to uh retailers to provide that customer choice to provide that innovation in terms of bills whether they want to bundle it with with something else and that's not a regulated um, activity.
1: So, how's it worked? Um, uh, uh, the vast majority of people are not on the default rate. Right? They've they've made a choice in terms of which retailer they're going to go with. Correct. And so, yeah. there's an
0: increasing number, particularly once um, the Australian Energy Regulator set that default market offer to provide that uh, that benchmark. Right. Um, there's been. Uh, a, a larger churn, a larger switch uh, towards uh, market offers,
1: and then the uh, the network tariffs are they anything anything different and unusual or or, or innovative in that space or is is it strictly a calculation of I don't know cost of service and they calculate a rate base and you give them a return and how does it, or, well, or are they doing something different? It
0: is, uh, it is an incentive-based uh, okay. mechanism. Yeah. So typically, a transmission uh, company or a distribution company would come into uh, the Australian Energy Regulator with a five-year revenue proposal. Yeah. Um, the AER would then test it uh, to ensure that it was, it was reflective of a forecast of efficient costs. Uh-huh. Um, so in that way, it wasn't a cost of service. Okay. Um, so it's not based on actual costs; it's based on efficient costs. And the mm-hmm. and the AER has uh, a number of tools uh, that they use to to base uh, the efficiency of what's being proposed in terms of the OPEX and the CapEx forecasts and the demand forecasts. Right. Um, some of them are, you know, benchmarking, different types of regression analysis, uh, partial uh, indicators, uh, trend analysis. Um, and essentially, uh, if they don't, if the forecasts don't reflect efficient costs, then the AR uh, replaces it uh, with a forecast that they find does reflect efficient costs. Um, the The regulatory process is um, goes through a draft decision, and then the network has an ability to file a revised um, revenue proposal addressing the concerns that uh, the AAR has put in their draft proposal before coming up with their final uh, decision. Now all of these decisions are legislated Mm -hmm. Uh, timeframes so you've got to get them done uh, within a a certain period of time. Uh, Up until uh, recently, I use that word uh, loosely, so up until I want to say 2014 um, the regulatory process was largely a two-party process. You had the network uh, come in with uh, what they thought they needed over the uh, next five years. The AAR would uh, test that, um, you know, run the ruler over it and, and use those tools that I Mm -hmm. mentioned, Mm -hmm. come up with a, um, a draft decision, Uh, the network would respond, usually uh, respond with just more information on why they needed uh, that increase and then uh, the final decision would come out and then we typically all trot off to uh, the courts and uh, because they were, our decisions were, were largely appealed. Oh, what, okay. we have, <laughs> what we have seen is uh, an interesting and, uh-huh. and a very adversarial approach. Really, uh, yeah. And, you know, that's not in anybody's interest, especially yeah. not consumers' um, interest, because really everything is looked at through the lens of not only this efficiency objective, but also what's in the long-term interest of consumers. Um, And prior to uh, me arriving at the AER, uh, the AER established through a program called Better Regulation, established a consumer challenge panel. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was uh, the panel consisted of, I want to say, about 12 um, experts uh, who were there to challenge not only the Australian energy regulator in their review of these um, revenue proposals, but also challenge the networks. Um, And that started to really change things, uh, change things around. Um, And then we also, the networks also lost their ability to appeal Um, Hmm. our decisions having, uh, well, they can appeal it to the courts, but they can appeal it to the competition uh, tribunal based on the merits, so there's oh, still so the I legal see. if there's an error in law they certainly right. uh, they certainly can so there is you know the the consumer challenge panel uh, there was the loss to the limited uh, merits review there was um, a a different type of process that when I was there, we decided to uh, try out in terms of how do we, you know, how do we go forward with redoing our decision after an appeal? Um, so I just said, look, bring the networks in, um, bring the consumer groups in and let's sit around the table and say, what does everybody want out of this? And that started the consumer engagement Uh, discussion of course there is also a you know a wave across the world of hey it's finally time to bring consumers into (laughs) uh into the equation and um then a a couple of years ago um one of the consumer groups and the network association and and one uh, uh, network in particular said well let's try something different um Hmm. and we'll call it the new reg Uh, proposal, the new reg approach, and uh, it's cotton on really well. Uh So what that, what that involves is a lot of upfront engagement. Right. So forget about when you're going to file the the proposal. Let's bring consumer, let's have the consumer voice, the consumer engagement. So that means a back and forth. If you look at the spectrum um, of engagement, so that by the time we get through, you know, the network gets through their investment plans, their proposal to get to the regulator, they're essentially presenting something that is capable of Mm -hmm. acceptance because it has been through such an in-depth amount um, of engagement. It doesn't mean that the AR doesn't run their ruler over it, but boy, it really shows that this essentially, this proposal has really good consumer buy-in or it highlights areas where they really couldn't come to uh, come to agreement. And that sort of collaborative approach, aligning consumers' interests Mm. with the network businesses um, is being, um, is being closely watched in other jurisdictions. And it's something I'm quite proud of.
1: Is it reducing the, uh, the the times that the courts are are turned to uh, as a result of, it's at, well
0: or, it, yeah there's a few things that that's um it's reducing uh, francis it's um you know it, it essentially means that the network can get on and run their business and they're yeah. not caught their staff aren't all caught up um in the regulatory process right, um, right. because as you know a regulatory process is not just Yep. the folks that sit in the regulatory yep. department oh, yeah. but it involves um, staff yeah. across the um, yeah. across the company um, it uh, so you know we've got this um, draft uh, decision and then there's usually about nine months I think between the draft decision and the final decision but if you get to the draft decision, and, you know, there's been a significant amount of consumer engagement. The Consumer Challenge Panel has looked right. at it before and after. And essentially, you're saying, no, the AR is saying, no, this looks good. Then there's not much to change, if anything. I mean, you might have to update some some numbers here and there between yep. draft and final. But it means that you've got, you know, the company can go ahead and start working on the plans that were in. Uh, that were in the proposal. So it reduces staff time um, and it um, it means that the companies can get on uh, and do their work, but they also know that they're providing energy services, electricity services that are of value to consumers because they've been able to uh, genuinely um, weigh in and see uh, where their input um, has mm-hmm helped shape um a uh, help shape a proposal and you know i do go back i did go back to consumers Mm -hmm. um and say look is this is this you know as we'd say in australia fed income is this you know genuine (laughs) is this genuine uh engagement have your views been reflected in the proposal and in many areas saying absolutely you know they've gone through surveys interviews and now with COVID, they're going through webcasts and podcasts and you know you see a lot of these and consultative groups and you see a lot of these networks that they have really embraced this and they are going much further uh in their engagement than they ever thought they would
1: and you've seen um You've seen regulation from, well, I was going to say both sides, but there's more than just two sides, but you've seen it from the industry side, from, from your time at PowerStream, and yeah. then you've been with, well, I was going to say two regulators, but you're with a third regulator now as well. Yeah. So has that deep understanding, because you, you came from industry, helped you uh, as a regulator? Is uh, actual experience from a regulated company something that, that is helpful uh, in terms of background for a regulator?
0: I think so. I I do. I do think so. And, you know, I would always encourage uh, my staff if they wanted to go and work for uh, the networks, um, you know, go and and learn, you know, what it's like to be over there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, having been um, both going to a network um, after I was on, I was at the Ontario Energy Board as staff. Mm -hmm. And so that was after I was at Sydney Water. Um, but, you know, you you then get to the network and you find in about three months, you think, crumb, I wish I'd known then what I know now.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then you go back as a board member and you think, oh. I wish I'd known then what I know now. And, you know, it's all part of, it's all part of the growth. And I, and I also think, um, you know, personal and professional, uh, uh, sorry, and, and organizational growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think the benefit too is um, having worked in those different jurisdictions, you understand as you've lived and breathed a different right. um a different way of looking at things, uh, a different approach. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I first went over to the AER, um, you know, I'd ask different questions or why don't we look at things this way or why don't we Mm -hmm. look at things that way? And, you know, part of it was because I didn't understand the legislative construct as well over there as to why we didn't do it um, and would get told quick smart uh, why we couldn't do it that way. But then there were also... Thoughts where, you know, you'd have people say, yeah, well, hang on. Why, why can't we look at it this way? Why can't we do it um, that way? And so that has, uh, that has really uh, helped. And I think it's helped me uh, be um, a better regulator and, uh, you know, a better executive if I decide to do that one day. And um, you know, hopefully bring value to my clients right now as a, as a consultant.
1: One of the, one of the questions that I ask folks that come on the podcast is about sort of their, their, their career progression and, and how they got to where they got to. So if, um, you know, one of my daughters or one of my nieces is listening to this and they say, wow, I'd like to grow up and be like Paula and run a, (laughs) run a, a regulatory authority. Like what was, what was sort of your, your progression? What was that? What was that voyage?
0: Uh, you know, it's interesting, it's not something that I've planned out, um, Francis, I, I never, you know, if you'd told me 20 years ago, I'd be where I am now, I'd yeah. say you're, you know, you're crazy. Um, I think part of it is, um, you know, a, a combination of serendipity, of taking opportunities, taking chances, Um Many of my moves geographically um, have been for personal uh, reasons. Right. Um, You know, I started off doing some um, postgraduate work in Australia, clearly fell in love with the country, um, went back and forth. It's, you know, I say it's my, told my mother the other day, it's the third time I've lived in Australia. So clearly something keeps pulling me back there, Uh Um, but really is just looking out for, um, for opportunities, right. um, not waiting to tick all the boxes, um, right. if you will. And also, you know, engaging with a network and, and not only with people who are like-minded, but mm-hmm. also people who think differently. Right. Um, and there's so much you can learn um, from, from, from that uh, type of approach. And the other one is really uh, being okay with stepping out of my comfort zone. Right. And boy, I have not stepped out of my comfort zone. I've leapt out of my comfort zone <laughs> uh, on many occasions and and developing and, and maintaining that growth uh, mindset, that sort of, holy mackerel, I don't think it can get any harder than this. Yeah. And just saying to yourself, you know, it's going to get easier next week. It'll be that much easier in a month's time and you're going to look back in a year's time and say, look at me, look at what I've, you know, look at what I've done Mm -hmm. and being comfortable with not with asking the questions. Um, You know, I was talking to somebody about a CEO position back in Australia. And one of the questions that, you know, one of the comments made to me was, you know, you're not an engineer. And I said, well, I don't need to be an engineer. I just need to hire the best engineer, Uh, you know, and, and being, being okay with, you know what you're not an expert in, yeah, um, and just maximizing on what you are an expert in.
1: Hey, one of the things, Paul, that I ask folks that come onto the podcast is about either the book that they're reading or a book that they've recently read that they would recommend to the listener. So, all right, for you, what, what that what would that book be?
0: Well, I'll give you three. All right. How about that?
1: We're building because... up. We're building up a really interesting library of right. these questions. So, <laughs>
0: give us three. Sure. All right. Um, well, part of it is, um, there's nothing wrong with reading fluff. And so I've read an awful lot of fluff Uh this, uh, this summer, Uh as long as it's well-written, uh, fluff.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: but anyway, I'll put, I'll put those aside. There's, you know, where the crawdads sing and uh, I can't remember uh, other ones that I've read, Uh but, but three that I, that, that stand out for me from this summer. One is uh, a book called Educated by Tara Westover. And this okay. is about um a uh, a Mennonite uh woman who um you know lived with her very eccentric um parents um out in the middle of uh nowhere, was homeschooled if she wanted to be educated or not, uh, and ended up getting her PhD. Um and just for me, the uh the takeaways from that was you know resilience uh was believing uh in yourself although she had to depend on other people to to help her believe in herself until she actually was able to believe in herself as well and also was the um because it's a memoir and the interesting of her perspective of things she, she, real, she articulated that it wasn't necessarily actually how things occurred. No. And so I thought that was quite interesting. So I'm probably not articulating it well enough. But anyway, I would highly recommend it. It's fantastic. The other one is the Collective Wisdom of High-Performing Women. Uh-huh. Uh, leadership Lessons from the Judy Project, which uh, I believe is from the Rotman School of Business. Right. I would highly recommend it. Not only um, for women, but for men, there uh-huh. are some fantastic um, some fantastic lessons in there.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And then finally, one that, if you are ever interested in the um, absolute sort of almost sporting, level of politics and energy in australia oh um a friend of mine wrote this matthew warren it's called blackout how is energy rich australia running out of electricity and it is a an easy read an entertaining read um and it'll give you a nice new perspective on what is sometimes the sport the blood sport of energy politics and climate change in australia
1: terrific those are uh, those are three great recommendations paula i want to thank you very much for joining the podcast i really appreciate it thanks for the conversation
0: my pleasure francis it was a lot of fun
1: we hope you enjoyed this episode of flux capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.